Welcome to the Opium Den. I'm your host, Daniel Williams. Well, the blowback from my article that I had printed at uh, opposingviews.com, that blowback uh, continues because I I took the position that medical marijuana is not the uh, best strategy to move the drug debate forward. So I've received uh, a number of very interesting emails and uh, we're going to uh, read some of them uh, tomorrow because what we'll be doing, um, we'll be talking to Chris Crane. And Chris Crane, for all of you out there who don't know who he is, Chris Crane is the executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. It is a large uh, nationwide organization uh, with uh, chapters on... uh, maybe 500 college campuses. So uh, we'll be talking uh, with Chris tomorrow, and we'll put that, uh, put that interview uh, conversation up, on the, up in the archives shortly. But, you know, the blowback aspect, uh, mostly I've been told that uh, I shouldn't really rock the boat. And why I shouldn't rock the boat is that uh, the senator from Virginia... Mr. Webb has uh, decided that he was going to uh, sponsor the National Criminal Justice Commission's Act of 2009, which will be an 18-month study of the criminal justice system and drug policy factors in uh, quite a bit of that. So I've been told to, like, like I mentioned, don't rock the boat because this commission is going to you know, make us all happy and well. But the point that I'll be making uh, in discussing this tomorrow with Chris Crane is that this 18-month-long commission or study, whatever you want to call it, uh, before they even make any recommendations and whether those recommendations will be adopted or not. But during that 18-month study, um, over 1 million young people will be arrested for the simple possession of marijuana. So maybe I'm rocking the boat. But the fact is, a million kids getting arrested for pot. But that's what we'll be talking uh, about tomorrow with, uh, with Chris. And I said we'll put that uh, conversation up on the, in the archives. But tonight, tonight we are happy and honored to have as our live guest. So you'll be able to send us emails and we'll read them and discuss them on the air. My, my guest tonight is Randall H. Miller. And uh, Randall is a very bright guy. And for those of you who don't know Randall, you should become acquainted. He is a uh, educator, and uh, he lectures quite uh, quite often. And uh, Randy's uh, bona fides, if you want to call him that, and he probably should because I am. Uh, Randall has a master's degree in diplomacy, uh, which was at a, a focus on international terrorism. And he had a he received a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, and uh, Mr. Miller has served honorably as a U.S. Army officer both both in the Second Infantry Division in South Korea, and the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg. Now, why we have Mr. Miller on tonight is his master's thesis was titled "Al Qaeda Meets Al Capone: Islamic Terrorism." 
and organized crime. And uh, Mr. Miller, he blogs, as I, as I said up at the top, he blogs regularly uh, on progressive politics and uh, terrorist issues over at RandallHMiller.com. So uh, for all of you who will be meeting and listening to Randy for the first time tonight, I recommend that you put in your favorites and bookmark RandallHMiller.com and follow the uh, very insightful and interesting writings of Mr. Miller. So we'll be getting, uh, getting our call set up here in a couple of minutes. So if everybody or if anybody needs to take a pate break, I recommend that you do so now. Um, get comfortable, strike a match, and uh, sit back, and we're going to talk with Mr. Miller about all those crazy Islamic fascists doing their best to integrate themselves into the, into the uh, international drug trade. So I see we've got a, a couple of emails right off the bat, and while we set up the, while we set up the uh, phone call to Randy, we're going to, uh, uh, let's see, well, we got two emails here. So we'll get to those as we get into uh, our conversation with uh, Randy. So I want everyone to, uh, if you have a question or a comment, uh, do what these uh, two fellows have already done and send us your comment or question for uh, Randy. Send it to daniel at theopiumden.net and we will do our best to, uh, to read them and address them on the air. So if everybody is uh, ready to go, I'm going to... Uh, Click on here and see if we can get this call to uh, to Randall Miller started, and we'll hear the couple uh, boop boops from Skype. There it is. So we're getting ready to speak with Randall Miller. If he answers the phone. Comfortable. Hi, this is Randy. And, uh, hey, Randy uh, Daniel Williams. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Uh, well, I'm doing pretty good, but I'm getting some uh, feedback in my uh, end here, kind of a delayed loop of what, I, what I'm saying, so we'll just try to, to bypass that. If you're not hearing it, then it's only in my ear. I hear, I hear nothing but your beautiful voice, Daniel. Well, aren't you the sweet man? <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if you had an opportunity to, uh, to listen in, uh, at the top of the hour, but I introduced you and what our primary uh, conversation Okay, good. I blogged uh, today about uh, how Karl Marx once said that uh, religion is the opiate to the masses, and I believe now it has become the crack cocaine. So we're going to talk about some of that. But first, um, as, I, as I mentioned there up front, your expertise is in international terrorism and mm -hmm. how that relates to a number of things. But what I'd like to start with tonight, if you don't mind, before we get into that part. Sure, um, I'd like to start with uh, what's going on uh, just south of our border, a little closer to home down in, uh, down in Mexico. We seem mm -hmm. to be getting a, a, a lot of attention from the uh, mainstream media up here. And, Pretty uh, ugly, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. So what I want to do is uh, ask you to, we'll start off with uh, your take and insights onto uh, what's going on in Mexico. Well, 
didn't somebody in the administration say a week or two ago that that was proof that the war on drugs was actually working? Well, yes, uh, <laughs> that was it was it was mentioned by someone inside the administration, Hillary Clinton, and also outside the administration. John Walters, the previous drug czar for George W. Bush, said that the increased violence means we're winning. So <laughs> this stuff has been going on for a while. This uh, probably for the last 12 to 18 months. I read uh, and I would recommend to anybody over at Stratfor.com, a guy named Fred Burton puts out security alerts about once or about once a week. And the frequency in which he was mentioning Mexico went from zero to 60 really, really quick. But it's, it's, it's quite a bloodbath down there right now. And this is the kind of thing to throw a, a, a curveball here. This is the kind of thing that Islamic terrorists involved in drugs would try to avoid. In fact, this is the kind of thing that, that Mexican drug cartels would try to avoid. What's happening is, is they get there to the border with, with huge quantities of drugs, whatever it is, and then they have, to, they have to get it dispersed down to smaller amounts in order to get it across. That could be anything from, and this is what, coming from Fred Burton's latest bulletin, it could be anything from you know, somebody throwing it on the back of a horse, taking it through a backpack, or the, or the famous tunnels that we know of. But when you do that, you have to add a lot of people to your organization and it becomes bureaucratic and it becomes a pain in the butt and then people start fighting over it. This is exactly what Islamic terrorists like Al-Qaeda, like Hamas, like Hezbollah, the ones that we know have been in, involved in the illicit drug trade, would try to avoid. Well, that's uh, okay. If they want to stay out of that type of uh, bureaucratic mm -hmm. mess, I, could, I can understand that. But I do, I do have a question for you, if we, if we sure. can move from Mexico to, uh, to the Islamic terror groups. You obviously mentioned that they're involved in the drug trade, and I don't think that's a, a big surprise to, uh, to many of the people who are interested in drug policy reform. But what my question is, uh, as Muslims, and these individuals apparently take their faith very seriously, how you do think they, so. Yeah. How, how do they, as, as devout Muslims, how, how do these groups uh, square that activity in the, in the drug trade with the, with the tenets of the uh, Muslim faith? That's a good question because, as you know, most Muslim countries, you know, are completely dry of alcohol. Although in places like uh, Iran and nor nor normal Persian culture, smoking opium is reasonably well accepted as long as it's inside the house. Um, how do they square it? They square it because they're using it against the infidels, and they see it as a two-pronged approach. They're, you know, at the end of the Cold War when the money started drying up for terrorist groups, if I can just back up for some of the readers sure. who, may, who may not know this, during the Cold War, terrorist groups were able to get uh, money from a number of different states. Whoever supported the United States, whoever poured, uh, supported the Soviet Union, didn't really matter. There was money out there. When that dried up, they had to look for it in other places. Well, the ones that got there first were the FARC in Colombia. They export probably, what, 30 40% of the world's cocaine there. The, the Shining Path, or the Sendero Luminoso down in Peru, which everybody thought had been in their final throes or gone for at least the last couple of years, killed 14 just, I think, two weeks ago uh, in a drug deal gone bad. But they decided that organized crime, thus the, the name of my paper, Al-Qaeda Al uh, Al meets Al Capone. So organized crime presented them with so many different options. They could do anything from... 
uh, credit card fraud to piracy, not the kind of piracy they're talking about on South Park, but uh, uh, counterfeiting, even cigarettes. You're, you can probably remember, Daniel, the guys, I believe they were from Hezbollah in Virginia, and they had a cigarette running gig. Uh, they buy cigarettes for 20 bucks and drive to New York and sell them for 40 yeah, well, that's, that was a very lucrative business, if I'm not remember mistaken. That? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're right, it is. It sounds like a small deal. But in one truckload, they can net $2 million from it. So it's, it was a lot bigger deal than people thought. Unfortunately, that market on, is only so big. Right. What did they do? They jumped into the other part of organized crime that is the big enchilada, the $400 billion illicit uh, drug trade, which is about the same as the GDP of Spain. Right. It's, it's about, I think it's roughly equal to 8% of, of all global trade. Is that what it is? Yeah, I believe it, I believe it is. Now, you know, as a, but this is the internet and we, can, and we can say just about anything we want, but uh, <laughs> are, are these crazy fuckers into hookers and stuff or are they just drugs and, and arms? That is a fantastic question because <laughs> when I was presenting this paper, I remember it was the director of the program who was evaluating me, and he said, have you come across any sort of, any, or any evidence, any data of self-contamination, you know, of them getting involved in drugs and coming back? And I thought, well, you know, not really, except for the fact that the Fabulous 19, as they're called, you know, the 19 who took down the towers on September 11th, we know how we, they spent their last night on this earth at a strip bar. <laughs> well, that's where I'd be going if I was nose diving into a building the next day. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Well, okay, so just a little sidebar there, but I want to just back up just a little bit, uh, and I think you touched on it, but I'd like to get a little little more insight from from you on this. How how did these terror groups get involved in in the drug trade? Is it, I mean. Doesn't the, I mean, how do they interact with cartels, the, the South American cartels? Or are they a, a separate unit to themselves? Uh, very separate. They do business with the cartels, but they don't want to get too close. They may actually use intermediaries who don't even know who they're working for. Uh, they, they don't want to make friends doing this. And the reason is when you get involved in organized crime, this is when you start to leave footprints. This is when you start to leave evidence all over the world. Um, if we could go back one more th uh, thing to the self-contamination of drugs that just came to me, and I don't want to forget it. I have a good friend of mine fighting over in uh, Iraq. He was a ranger. And he said that nary was there a battle where afterwards they didn't go walking through and be stepping over hypodermic needles and evidence or refuse of drug use on the side of the jihadis. Really? Really. Almost the same, if you remember the movie Blood Diamond, almost the same type of stuff that they would do with child soldiers in Africa. Wow. Now, yeah, I wanted to get that in there. So that obviously implies or confirms that many of the many of the jihadists have to get a pretty strong uh, opiate buzz on before they uh, head into battle to die and claim their seventy-two virgins. <laughs> you got it. Well, to get hopped up enough to go against the United States Marine Corps, yes. Well, which which I don't know what I don't know what this says about the United States Marine Corps, but um, if our enemies are you know regularly hopped up on, well, not hopped up, I guess, but uh, sedated with opiates. I mean, how come, we're, how come we haven't killed them all yet? I mean, if they're going into battle high, and our Marines obviously are, are not, they're very sharp, how is it that uh, a bunch of druggies are giving us this much trouble? Well, i give you two answers to that. One of them is that most of the casualties in Iraq have been, have been pulled off by IEDs, which once it's made 
uh, you could be as stoned as you want when it goes off. On the other side there in Afghanistan, the contacts that I have there have said, yeah, there's a lot of them, but they die very easily. You know, I, and I, I didn't want to get into that too much with him. I was, you know, what do you mean they die very easily? He said they're, they're there almost more for their, for, to, to, jo- to die for jihad than they are to win. You know, they're not expecting to win. They think, they think hopefully someday that'll come in the future. So they, they prefer to die uh, quickly and get their uh, reward of the 72 virgins, which I would think with as many jihadists that we're killing, some of them have to be sisters and mothers. And, I <laughs> well, mean, you know, under, <laughs> what are under, they fucking thinking? <laughs> under some of these deals, they get more than the 72 virgins. They get to take their families with them eventually. Oh, well, there it is. So, so you it. get a young kid, you dope him up, you tell him all of that stuff, and off he goes. Well, <clears throat> I think when when you have an enemy that has a stated goal of dying, I, I, I believe we should help them achieve that goal as, as quickly as possible. Especially these guys. Especially these guys. Now, we mentioned that the, the global black market uh, in drugs is, is roughly $400 billion a year. Right. Now... Um, you mentioned how the, the, the Islamic terror groups are, are infiltrating that and, and how they set that operation up. But, but how do they, I mean, even if they have a, just a sliver of this $400 billion, mm-hmm. how, do they, how do they get the cash back? How do, how do they launder it through, move the money back to, uh, to their Good organization? Good question, because globally, the financial systems are relatively well-coordinated post-9-11 for things like this. In, in their world... In the Arabic world and the Muslim world, they have a system called Hawala, H-A-W-A-L-A. It's almost like a Western Union, but no <laughs> money ever really changes hands. You talk to a Hawala dealer in, in New York City, and you can end up paying money to somebody in the Middle East, and there are, there are almost no records whatsoever of it. And many of those places have been shut down. There was one, the name uh, slips my mind, but it came out of Indonesia. It was been shut down because they were... They were linked to laundering terrorist money. It's easy. It's easy for them. Really? Mm-hmm. Because that seems to be one of the greatest burdens of the uh, of our South American and Mexican drug cartels is just moving the the actual well, tonnage of cash back to their coffers. Sure, but look when we look down in South America, remember we have the tri-border region down there. Oh, that's of right. Bra- yeah. Brazil, Paraguay, and Argentina in Ciudad del Este. This is an absolute lawless place where. Everybody down there is part of some sort of outfit. They just don't know who, and they just don't ask each other a lot of questions. There's the the, the uh, population is only about three hundred thousand people. They yet they have fifty five banks that, <laughs> that that launders about six billion dollars a year. Now here's here's the kicker: every single day, over about forty thousand people in two thousand vehicles, many of them carrying freight and cargo cross into Brazil unchecked from Ciudad del Este. So their border is more porous and, and easy to navigate and easier to navigate than ours with Mexico? They don't ha- they don't have one. Oh, there's not there's no controls. There's uh, yeah, there's I mean there's nothing there. Oh, okay. Well, geez. So if you think you can get a lot of money across in cigarettes, imagine a truck full of cash. Now, um re- regarding the these these Islamic uh jihadist assholes whatever you want to call them and i mean i don't want to be disrespectful but when, I, I when they you. don't when they don't earn respect you have very few choices <laughs> is this a recent phenomenon the drug thing you mentioned uh, you know the persians which is obviously uh iran and 
and there's a lot of uh, opium uh, smoking going on there. Do, do they source, do they get their opium from um, Afghanistan or where, where do the Persians uh, source their? Yeah, yeah of course. There's, I mean, it's nothing new. Just like poppy has been grown down in South America forever, or I'm sorry, uh, coca, poppy has been grown in Afghanistan forever. The the Taliban, when they took over the first time, remember that one of the first things they did was chop down all the all the poppy and say no more. And within about 18 months, they said, holy cow, look how much business we're missing. And they said, okay, go ahead and get back out there and start growing the poppy. Uh, but to answer the question, no, it's, not, it's, it's nothing new. It's just more organized now. And perhaps no better example of how organized they are is how they get caught, Q-A-T, from uh, the Horn of Africa into the middle of the United States. Cot is it has yeah. to be cut. I want to I, I, I want to speak to that, but just a little. Sure. That's a couple of questions down on my list. I don't want to, to stop you there, but no, 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 go ahead. Let's let's stay back with in Iran and the, and the Persians. How big of a drug problem uh, from you know from your research and knowledge? How how big of a drug problem does Iran have? I know they don't have any homosexuals, so how big <laughs> how, how big of a drug problem do they have? Zero. Zero. <laughs> we got no drugs. No. I, you know, it, it's spoken about, it's written about so casually uh, when you read anything about Persian culture. But as long as, it, it's funny, there's sort of a dichotomy there where outside, you definitely, you're losing a lot of your freedoms in Iran. But inside, if you're minding your own business, they kind of leave you alone, which is kind of strange when you compare that to the United States. But, um, if I, if I had to peg an addiction rate or something, I would put it, and I'm spitballing here, probably four or five times the rate as ours. Really? Yeah. Does that does that uh, translate uh, into like easier access or easier uh, access? Nothing else to do. Nothing else to do. That's what I was going to say. High, high unemployment. What right. what else you can do? Well. <clears throat> What uh, let, me, let, me, let me move back to speaking about Hezbollah because you had mentioned the uh, the, the cigarette uh, smuggling aspect uh, from Virginia up to New York. Uh, back in, in 2002, there was um, an incident an incident in Chicago where apparently, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, there was a Hezbollah affiliated group uh, that was uh, that somehow found out, and I'd like to know how that uh, how that happened. But they they were caught with like 180 pounds of methamphetamines, almost 5 million in cash, and, you know, more cars than Hertz. How did that come to be? How did it get uncovered? Was it police work? Was it Homeland Security? That was, well, that was, uh, that was before Homeland Security was really up and running. Uh, but they, that was done by first-level responders. That was done by cops, firemen, you know, crosswalk people, those people at, at the, the lowest level possible that notice things, they're vigilant, and then they report things. And face it, when you got 160 cars laying around, you're going you're gonna to draw a little bit of attention. Five million in cash, and what would you say, about 180 pounds of methamphetamine? Right, you right. Know, the higher the quantity, you're always going to attract a little bit more attention. But yeah, that was, that was taken down by local Chicago officials. Which brings me to a point that in, in um, some of what I've read that you have written, you seem to think that we need to have a more of a coordinated effort between, you know, local law enforcement, Homeland Security. All, all of these agencies need to to work better together because they in, in many instances they don't overlap. And if they were to work together, 
you believe we would have a, a much better shot at not only uncovering uh, terrorist cells uh, here in the United States, but they're also, also their connection to uh, the drug trade. Tell, tell, tell us a little bit about your thinking there. The, a, a lot of that, to be honest, now that we're in 2009, a lot of that has been ironed out in the last eight years or so. But we've all heard the horror stories of post 9-11 of you know, beat cops that don't want to share with the state police cops the same way that FBI doesn't want to share with the CIA, realizing that each one of them might hold a piece of the puzzle that could stop something there. Uh, but if we step back and we look at it and we realize that the bad guys are playing in organized crime, not just drugs, but all these other, all these other issues, uh, human trafficking, piracy, whatever, they're playing in all of those things. They're leaving us a footprint. They're making it easier for us, and we have the infrastructure in place already to catch bad guys. That's the whole comparison to Al Capone. Right. Al, Al Capone didn't go down for, for being a gangster. No, he right? went down for uh, tax evasion. For, correct. Which was gumshoe police work. He was, he was taken down by, by an accountant, basically. Right, right. Well, it was an accountant that took him down. Um, and with these guys, the, that's why I was saying in the beginning, you know, with the Mexico, with the with the vicious wars going on there, with trying to get, you know, micro, uh, micro traffickers through, they don't want to touch that stuff because that just increases their, their possibilities of getting caught. Okay. Well, we've got, we've got a question here. If you don't mind uh, addressing this, we have an email question from uh, Brian Bennett and uh, it reads, uh, if the government uh, is addressed to you, if the government is trying to uh, guilt pot smokers over the drug terrorism connection, uh, exactly how much of their money do you believe is is coming from pot smokers? That's that's funny because I I don't know if you had this commercial, Daniel, but in my neck of the woods, shortly after nine eleven, when uh, you know the government jumps on this stuff too, they say, look, we've got bad guys, we've got uh, Islamic terrorists involved in the drug trade. So you do drugs, you're promoting terrorism. And they had a commercial, and it, it, I'm paraphrasing it, but there was a young kid, he bought a joint or a bag or something, and then they followed the money trail back to you know putting an AK-47 in, in, into the hands of a terrorist. And everybody kind of went, oh, Jesus, come on. And it lasted a couple of weeks, and they pulled it. And they, the, the comparison I like to make is like, well, you know, we have combatants and we have non-combatants. Would you take the person who works at Lockheed Martin on a piston or something and hold them responsible if, if, you know, as a combatant, if perhaps that piston is one day used in an AH-64 Apache helicopter, does that make them a combatant? <laughs> you know, I mean, aren't we, aren't we stringing things out a little bit too long here? Well, obviously the ONDCP and, and Drug Partnership for a Drug-Free America, they're delusional and they do stretch things out. But uh, I have my opinions, but I want to know what yours is. Do you really believe that uh, the, the drug cartels, the South American cartels that are working with, uh, with their Mexican affiliates, do you really believe that uh, that much uh, of their profits come from the, from the cannabis trade? Or is that something our government is trying to use to yeah, I don't buy softball? It. Well, I don't, I don't buy it either, but it, it, it just... I don't buy it. It's too, it's too big. It's too cumbersome. It's too hard to move around. Quite frankly, it's too 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 easy to do at home. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, all the if, pot that I've smoked that I've smoked in the past ten or fifteen years <laughs> is uh, <laughs> it's 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 grown uh, 
right here in the good old U.S. of A. It's hydroponic. It's very high quality. And uh, I, I don't set myself up as the as a normal example, but I have a you know a fairly good network of friends and information. And most uh, most of the people I speak to don't buy the uh, the Mexican grade weed or whatever. Most of the pot is is uh, grown here in the in the United States. So I'm I'm thinking. No, I, think our, the, I think the bad guys, at least at least the bad guys that I study, the terrorists, they make their money off cocaine, specifically from the coca leaves, and, they, and from opium from poppy. You know, these are things that, that the biggest drug market in the world, the United States, can't do itself. Yeah, you know, I, but, I, but I, as far as cannabis, no, I don't. I don't think that's a big piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I, I agree with you, but but let's let's make the assumption for the sake of argument that okay. cannabis is a large part of their um, of their business, and our attempts to regulate and legalize marijuana here, uh, you know, ostensibly would uh, cut into their profits dramatically. If in fact that were true, and we do uh, legalize or regulate marijuana here. Won't that just act to infuriate the cartels that they lose a, a, a significant percentage of their business? Won't that make them more deadly, more desirable to bring more drugs into our country, extend, uh, ex- extend that part of their business out to make up for the, the lost profits? I mean, couldn't that actually work against us if we were to, if, if, assuming I, I that it's true? Are you saying that they would perhaps push their own products out by cutting their prices, or do you think they're going, they'd go into a new business and maybe start making pills? No, I don't think I don't think they'd go into a new business. I think they try to extend the business that they already have. Let's say half of their money comes from pot. Well, we we take that that profit away from them. All they've uh-huh. got left are their narcotics. So are they going to try to? I would think they would try to extend that market, get new customers, become more brutal in extending that uh, that particular brand, not only in the United States, but mm-hmm. in uh, in Western Europe, and 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 be focused on trying to uh, replace those profits. I don't think there's any other business. There's not enough people. There's not enough people in South America to kidnap to make up the the <laughs> money that they would lose if we were to right. regulate and legalize all drugs. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm quite frankly, I have no idea what they do with it. I mean, I'll tell you what they wouldn't do. They wouldn't just give up. We we know that. No, know absolutely. They're, uh, they they're won't not, give they're up. They're not going to go anywhere. Those, they're, they're nimble organizations. They're able to make decisions and switch uh, strategies very quickly. Hell of a lot quick, uh, more quicker than uh, government. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I think that if they if we did, if in fact that so much of their money comes and we from the marijuana trade and we take that away from them. I think it could, could, uh, could work uh, negatively, uh, uh, for us. I got an, I've got another, uh, this one just popped up. It's a, it's, it's a part of this particular question. A uh, gentleman, uh, Frank, uh, doesn't say where he's from. He wants to know what, what do you think? Um, you know, obviously since the, uh, the Islamic assholes are involved in the drug trade, what percentage, uh, of their money do you think they get from the drug trade? That's a pretty good question, actually. That's a really good question. You know, according to the CIA, they said Al Qaeda needed about thirty million dollars a year to operate prior to nine one one. They've been decimated pretty well since then, so I don't know what their overhead costs are. I, I would say significantly lower. But uh, if anybody's interested, there's I have two pieces of data in there about what exactly they do with this money. The nine one one attacks. How much do you think they cost? Well, they cost about $500,000, according to the CIA, to pull them off. 
and that's from getting 19 guys here, getting them into flight school, getting them places to live, uh, believable covers, feeding them, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you compare that spectacular attack with the 7-7 bombers in London, which were homegrown, uh, homegrown terrorists. That cost between ten dollars and $30,000 to pull off. It wasn't as spectacular as they wanted it to be, but pretty gruesome. They made their point. They did it a lot cheaper, and they did that basically through credit card fraud is how they raised that money. Uh, to answer his question, how much of it comes from uh, drugs, geez, I don't know. There, there's, there's such a clampdown on those Hawala distributors that we spoke about before. Charities are being watched so tight. I, I wouldn't even want to speculate, but I would say it's no less than 20 25%. So it's a significant uh, part of their... Their cost I call that significant enough to take the risk. Okay. Now I want to I want to move down uh, on my list here. You you spoke you you touched on it briefly. Cat, tell us. Not that many people here. I mean, maybe a lot of my listeners understand and, and know what cat is. But as far as a drug, I think the average guy in the street would, if you asked him if he knew what cat was, he'd say, "Well, it's what my dog chases around the house." But right. apparently, this is a, a a leafy substance that needs to be chewed. Right. It's grown in the in the the Horn of Africa, right? And specifically what, Somalia. Yes. Oh well, there you go. There's a garden garden spot, <laughs> and it's uh it's it's a it's over a billion dollar a year business uh, here right. in the in the United States. Now I don't know if the Islamic uh, terror groups are involved in that or if that's outside of their deal, but CAT is a Schedule One drug, which is under our Controlled Substances Act, it means it's the it has the highest potential for abuse and zero uh, potential as, as a medicine. But what right. I found what I found very interesting and in, in how efficient these uh, these drug smugglers are. Apparently, cat has a forty eight to seventy two hour uh, time frame to get maximum efficacy out of it. Correct. And these and these drugs are show, this drug is showing up in our country for, in a seventy two hour time frame. From being harvested in Somalia and and chewed on our on our streets, how is that possible? And you know, and you know where it's showing up. It's it's showing up in our our largest Somali populations in the United States are St. Paul, and Minneapolis. You'd be amazed. Huge, huge Somali populations there. Uh, in fact, they've been in the news you know, over the last month or two because allegedly we've had some leave the states, go train in terrorist camps, and show up in Somalia fighting. But having said that, there's a big market, obviously, for cot there. For those who are out there listening who are still confused, cot is that leafy substance where in the movie Black Hawk Down, you saw some of the old guys chewing on it with their teeth right. all black and nasty. When you chew on it, it gives you a buzz. But like Daniel said, you got to chew on it uh, within 48 to 72 hours or else it's no good. So they're able, you're asking, I, I assume, how are they able to cut this stuff from the ground in Somalia and get it to St. Paul, Minneapolis? sell it on the street and get it to people in time enough that it's still going to give them what it's supposed to give them. That is exactly my question. How, how, how do they do that? <laughs> very, very smoothly. And it, it speaks more to the importance of, of, of our allies being on the same sheet of music when it comes to financial laws, counterterrorism laws, and drug laws as well. Because CAT is 100% legal in the U.K., so really? there's absolutely no doubt that that stuff gets springboarded through the UK. So they t they 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 ship it from uh, the Horn of Africa, primarily Somalia, 
yep. so into the UK. I mean, are they, they, they can't put it by boat, so they got to be flying this stuff in. Right. Who knows? And the first time when we, when we started, uh, when we started discovering it here on the home front, I wish I had the book in front of me. I owe you that reference. It's actually, it's on my webpage. If you go to randallhmiller.com, anybody who's listening, the first thing you're going to see is me in the opium den. If you click there, I've given a list of references for every single thing I'm talking about. And what I'm going to talk about right now is from a book, uh, Something in the Holy Front. Uh, I, I forgot who, who wrote it. Um, but he was talking about when cop, the first few times we even discovered it here, that uh, a cop opened up, a police officer opened up somebody's trunk, and he was stuffed full of the stuff. And he, th- he said if he hadn't had had some training on it, he'd have thought it was a salad. He'd have thought maybe, maybe this guy was a caterer, and he was going off to, to cater a, a dinner somewhere. So that's the importance of training the those first level responders, those great people who were able to bust up that Hezbollah ring in Chicago that we talked about before that had 160 cars and 180 pounds of meth. So that's pretty impressive, though, isn't it? That's very, very impressive. I've been I've been waiting for a package from Ohio for about 10 days now. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, there's no cat in it. And if there is, no. it's, it's worthless yeah. by now. Right. Well, uh, so is it is, is obviously it's a leafy substance and it could it could be uh, could be mistaken for for lettuce and the like. But yeah, I, and I and I have to display my ignorance here. I've never chewed cat. I don't know. Is there a, is there a scent or an odor to it or does not? It, not that I'm aware of. So it's basically just a leafy no. Right. Odor. I, I imagine there's got to be. Hmm. Okay. So I I, I want to uh, I want to tell I want to bring my listeners in on this now. You're you're back in the United States now, but for for a number of years you lived down in the uh, Dominican Republic. Right for about and, the last six years. For about the last six years, and uh, you you your base of operations was from there, and you and you taught uh, taught school. But in in the uh, and I mean I don't want to minimize that, but obviously because it's important. My mother was a teacher all of her life. I have a soft spot and in I, my heart for. I was on staff at the Supreme Court as well for a couple of years there when I was down you, there. You were on staff. I was. Oh well, that, that that I did not know, but well, I taught I taught a course in globalization while I was there, but uh, but I spent most of my time in the DR teaching at the secondary level at a private school. At a private school. Now, I, I would think that you dealt with a lot of politicians, children, the fluent people. Sure. Yeah. Well, what what was what was the status for the six years you were in Dominican Republic? Mm-hmm. What was the status on on the on, on the drug trade down there, and and who was responsible for it? Did it change over the period of time you were there? If if it did change at all, um, it got worse for the drug users, and it's much much different. It's a much different culture than it is here. It's much more conservative. Um, if somebody is smoking a joint of marijuana, it's the, they might as well have a needle in their arm booting up heroin. There's absolutely no difference. They don't make that distinction in that culture. Nor do they make that distinction when they go in front of a judge to be, to be sentenced. Somebody might have a small joint of marijuana and get two or three years in an abysmal jail. The the interesting part here, and this almost goes back to what we were talking about, the problem at the border with Mexico, is you get the big, large quantities of drugs, you want to get them down to micro-dealing so you can get it out. Well, a number of years ago, the Colombians and the South Americans who used the, 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 the DR as a bridge, instead of paying cash, they started paying in product. 
So they'd come through, they'd bop through the island, and instead of giving thousands of dollars, whatever it was, they'd pop out extra kilos of, of, uh, of cocaine. So the local dealers, if they wanted to get their money, they had to do what? They had to distribute it out into and find users and get it out there. Now, that doesn't work very well in a place that looks at drug use very much as almost exclusively as a criminal proceeding, as, as, a, as a criminal activity and not at all as a public health issue. So if that's it. If somebody is caught down there with drugs or, or hopelessly addicted, well, you're hopelessly prosecuted. That's about it. Well, what's, what's the general attitude of the, of the population here? We look at marijuana and everybody kind of laughs it off and doesn't yep, think that's, yep, that's serious. Do they have the same mindset or is any, any nope. drug use down there considered bad? It, they don't talk about it. It's not something you talk about. It's not something you joke about. Um, it's very, very different. Whereas when I was down there voting by absentee ballot from Massachusetts, where my home of record, I mean, this past November, we had question two. Question two, do you wish to decriminalize less than an ounce of marijuana? And I showed this ballot to my friends and even some of my students. And I said, look, this, these are the, some of the kinds of things going on in, in my progressive country or very progressive state of Massachusetts where, you know, uh, gays can get married, one of the few states. And I voted yes on two. And I think I told you a couple of weeks ago, Daniel, when I was looking over the data from that, the different towns, and I'm, I'm from a you know, primarily white middle-class town, it passed overwhelmingly. It wasn't just Roxbury. It wasn't just uh, you know, the towns that have a negative stereotype with them that passed this. It was pretty much everybody. So there is a lot of progressiveness going along with this. Does that translate to down there? No, it doesn't. Okay, I've got a I've got another email here from uh, Susan Ooh. in Michigan. Popular tonight. Well, you know, I think it's probably you. Nobody knows who the fuck I am, but you <laughs> you got a pretty good following. Uh, Susan, who, who is uh, this from? Susan in uh, in. Uh, I've got to get my glasses or turn the light. Susan in Michigan. Okay. And Susan says, um, "This is again directed to you." Uh, I'm going to paraphrase here. Be, being well, I'll, I'll read it. Being an outspoken critic of Muslim terror groups and organizations, oh, I like this. Do do you have you oh, says, have you had threats or do you feel uh, unsafe in in making these uh, what is it word oh, in, in making these um, Christ I can't read it. In, in making these pronouncements, that's which I think is spelled wrong. In making these pronouncements, in the essence is: do you, do you feel frightened by your outspokenness, and have you had any type of threats for what no. you do? No, not at all. I don't feel uncomfortable doing it. I don't feel I don't feel scared at all. I think as long as Salman Rushdie is still walking around <laughs> and Christopher Hitchens and a, few, and a few other people, I'm pretty low on the list. But but I'm very flattered by that by that question. Well, uh, thank, you. thank you, Susan from Michigan. Yeah, Susan from Michigan. So, okay, now I'm looking down my my uh, my questions here. Mm-hmm. What uh, with regards to we'll, we'll try to stay on the terrorism drug connection. Do you do you think this is um, a flash in the pan for the uh, the terrorists to be involved in the drug deal, or is it so? so ingrained that they're just one more problem uh, associated with drugs 
you, you... I, I think they're going to ride it as long as they can. But mm -hmm. but some of the things they do, um, getting back to not wanting to get involved at it at the at the low side of the deal is there are parts of Asia where Al Qaeda. Uh, controls passage, but they never put their hands on the drugs. But they say, okay, if you want to bring it through, no problem. You just have to pay toll to the troll. Uh, that's <laughs> relatively low risk for them. They'll do that as long as they possibly can. If your question is, if all of a sudden there were no drug prohibition and the and the profits would dry up and blow away, I think they'd do what everybody else does. It's a, it's a constant game of whack-a-mole. They'd find something else to do. You know? Uh, organized organized criminals have been able to do that for a long, long time. What would it be? I don't know. And do you think it would be lucrative lucrative enough to uh, replace the, the the profits that they're making now? I don't. Not unless there's something coming that we don't know about yet. <laughs> because <laughs> there's there's a reason why. And I I sent before this phone call, I sent you some of my uh, PowerPoint slides for when I do this full blown lecture. Um, you'll recall there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, options on the criminal options if they want to get into organized crime. There's human trafficking, credit card fraud, cyber crime, arms sales, piracy. Look, I mean, look what these idiots in in Somalia are doing. Do you think in they were chewing cat? Yeah, but they should they should have been. <laughs> and, and drugs is at the top of that pyramid because it's just so huge. It's also you know it, it, these other things like credit card fraud, cyber crime. These are very esoteric skills, you know. If you don't have them in your in your organization already, well, you either got to outsource it, which then gives you another connection to someone you may not you may not want to be connected to. You're leaving another footprint, or you have to get one of your own guys trained. That's a big pain in the butt. Hmm. Okay. Well, I want to. I'm going to. This is my last question. I want to ask, and then I'm going to give you a few minutes to to say whatever you like. Mm -hmm. But. Um, we hear we hear so much about what we need to do to to tamp down the uh, the the Islamofascism the the problems that continually creep up and generate. They say, well, a lot of these guys aren't really jihadists. They just need a job. If employment mm -hmm. would would rise, we'd see a diminished uh, interest in in being uh, a jihadist. And, and we get a lot of kind of mixed signals. You know, it seems like the left wants to be more diplomatic and and look at it from a from a root cause level, and then the the Republicans just want to shoot him in the back of the head. And and I got to tell you, I lean more towards at least at this juncture, shoot him in the back they, of the head. It said, "Send them hunting with Cheney." <laughs> exactly, exactly. So what what from your from your expertise and your experience, what do you what do you think will will if if it can be solved? What do you think is the the, the proper the proper procedure, the proper way to go about uh, turning these folks into our friends? Well, it's a multifaceted approach. But first of all, jihadist as job, that probably is the biggest problem that our guys and gals have been facing in Iraq and Afghanistan for the last few years. A guy may not necessarily want to be in the militia or the Taliban, but if he's going to be unemployed as the alternative, he will do it. He will do it. Uh, but to step back to even a bigger picture, I think the problem here is we have one side that says, that's it, we got to find them, we got to kill them all. We got this is a war on terror. We have the other side that says, no, no, we'll reach out, we'll make nice, and they'll they'll be our friends. And I don't think either of them are on the right track. And the reason is not all terrorist organizations are created equal. Example: Al Qaeda, uh, Wahhabists, 
very extreme. What do they want? They want the entire world. They wanted to install a global caliphate. Yeah, they want, they want to take us back to the 7th I, century. I, I'm sorry. It's just a little unreasonable. So <laughs> you talk about negotiating with terrorists. We've negotiated with terrorists throughout our history. I'll debate anybody on that. So, uh, But you talk about negotiating with these guys? No, impossible. What do you do? Do you sit down and say, you know, Osama, I, I know you want the whole world. How about we just give you half? You know, Is this more ridiculous? There's, there's, there's. We can't go anywhere with these guys. They can't be negotiated with. We have to find them. We have to kill them. Well, but then well, if you look, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, you're, you're, you're going where I want to go. Keep going. I was going to say. So that's one type of organization. We can't treat them all the same. It's not a cookie cutter approach. It's not one size fits all. Now we go to Hezbollah. Well, Hezbollah before 9/11 had killed more Americans than any terrorist organization ever. In fact, what got me personally interested in terrorism was in 1989, July of 1989, I was in London, England with a buddy of mine with a backpack and I was drinking a beer and I looked up at the monitor and I said, what the heck is that? And there was a man bound with his hands bound behind his back and his feet bound together and blindfolded and his, just, his dead body dangling there. And I wanted to find out who that was. And that man's name was Colonel Higgins. He had been stationed at the embassy in Lebanon, and he was, he was captured, tortured, and executed by Hezbollah. That's what got me going on this more than 20 years ago. So I have no love for Hezbollah. However, they also have elected members of the Lebanese parliament. They have a wing, a political wing, that is widely supported in Lebanon. We look at Hamas. We demanded that there be open and free democratic elections in the Palestinian Authority. And then we got mad when the quote-unquote wrong people won. Well, guess what? Hamas won. So now they're going to have to be part of the peace process, both of those two organizations. We don't have to like it, but we do have to deal with it because we can't keep going around using the world as our sandbox. Now get back to al-Qaeda. That's where I'm down with you and I'm down with most of the other troopers on that. That's it. we got to find them and kill them. There's nothing to talk about with them. Well, so not until we get the higher-ups to realize that this generic general war on terror or thinking that one approach is going to work, not until we educate them that it just can't be like that. It has to be multifaceted. We're not going to get anywhere. Well, how, how much of the problem do you believe it is that until, until Muslims decide basically who the fuck's leading their parade, whether it was the, it's the Shia or the Sunni line down from Muhammad, is is that the crux of the biscuit, so to speak? I mean, is that is that what's going to keep it moving regardless of what so. we do? I don't think so. You know, roughly 80% of all the world's Muslims are Sunni. The the, the, the Shia are still a small minority. But even, even though the Sunni are, are the big minority, Al-Qaeda has been rejected. That When we look at what they want, all of their goals, they haven't established a single one. They had one spectacular attack here. And they've been on the run ever since. And the good men and women of the armed forces of us and all of our allies have really hammered them. They, there's, they haven't toppled a single Arabic autocrat. It, they, nothing's happening for them. Instead of pulling off these big, these big uh, explosions, they have to send in a tape every once in a while from a cave. So I would say no. And the majority of the Muslim world has rejected them. But we have to learn to, to, to make the difference. There's a division there between 
how the, the how the how the Muslim world feels about Al Qaeda and how they feel about Hamas and Hezbollah, because there are some other issues there. Okay, well, and that may be something for another show. Yeah, well, we're we're <laughs> gonna we're gonna have you back because you're a smart guy, and we're trying to broaden our our scope here. We're talking, you know, mostly, uh, you know with drug policy here in the United States and, and Western Europe. And I was lacking uh, uh, like a Latin American bureau and, and you're, uh, you're filling that bill. Uh, from, from Boston. I'm feeling. Well, you're up. Yeah. You're in Boston, but you know, what the fuck, man, it's the internet. We could be anywhere. So what I want to, I want to, I want again, I want to thank, uh, I want to thank you, Randy, for, for coming inside the opium den tonight. And I'm sure it was, uh, it, it was very informative to my listeners. It was informative to me and, Everybody can uh, go to the archives sometime tomorrow, and they can download this interview for those who uh, who don't listen live. And actually, we're getting uh, quite a quite a good response for uh, for our conversations. We've had a little over four thousand downloads on some of the interviews, so great. I expect That's this great. one to to be quite popular. So I want to I want to give you the last word, uh, Randall H. Miller. Uh, tell me. Uh, what what is there is there any kind of stories that you know that the general population doesn't know that are kind of secret that you could share with us on your way out tonight? Um, geez, if I if I did, I wouldn't share them. But all I would, all I would <laughs> I've, I've, I've I've kept in very close contact with my with my good friends who are in the military who have done stints in both Afghanistan and Iraq. And politics aside, they're great people. They're hardworking. Uh, one or two of them are the kind of people who don't exist, who are, you know, not door kickers anymore. They're cave kickers. And we've done some serious damage to Al-Qaeda. Um, that makes me feel good. That makes me sleep, uh, sleep a little bit better at night. But the only other thing I would add is that, uh, you know, I, I blog about this stuff regularly. And if you go to RandallHMiller.com, that's R-A-N-D-A-L-L-H-Miller.com, the first thing you'll see there is, me in the opium den and if you click on that it gives references for everything that daniel and i talked about tonight and it also gives a couple of links to some really good uh sites on terrorist information if you want to take it upon yourself to to stay up on the topic well randall h miller thank you very much for coming inside the opium den tonight thank you i'll talk to you soon daniel thank you very good thanks a lot bye now Okay, that was Randall H. Miller, a terrorism expert. We went a little far afield tonight, but as I mentioned in the blog, not so much far afield because religion is the most dangerous and addictive drug out there. Now we're going to close out the evening. We're going to call uh, a friend of the show, uh, Brian Bennett. We're going to uh, um, get him up on the board. Uh, Brian had a couple of comments that he wanted to talk about, so... Uh, we enjoy talking to Brian, so as soon as I can get this uh, Skype thing all set up, we're going to give Brian a call. Let's hope he's still listening. I don't know if he is. If he isn't, then well, we're kind of fucked for the last few minutes. But uh, I think Brian will still be there. Let's give Brian a call. So while we're waiting for Brian, hope everybody enjoyed Randall Miller. He's a pretty smart guy. Pretty smart guy. So waiting for Brian. Yo. Oh, Brian. Going on, Daniel. Hey, not much, brother. Thanks for your uh, for one of your emails here. So I wanted to. Uh, I'm going to take. That. I'm going to assume that you uh, had an opportunity to listen tonight. What's your oh, what, yeah. What's your take on Randall Miller and uh, and the terrorism drug connection? Were you Were you as aware of that 
before this evening yeah, than I, you are now? I spent a career in the intelligence business, so uh, I guess I'm kind of way more aware than most people are. Uh, and it was good to hear Randall uh, uh, validate a lot of things since I'm pretty much out of the loop anymore. I quit the intelligence business back in about uh, 2006. I was actually a federal employee until 2000 and then consulting with them until 2006 uh, and, and basically kind of just faded away and don't really maintain contacts with folks in that arena anymore. So it's kind of interesting to hear updates basically on uh, what's going on out there in the field from Randall. Well, I, I, I was, uh, I, I got an education tonight. One, the one thing that I, I've always said that until the, the Muslims decide who's leading their parade, whether it's a descendant of or who the Sunni believe is the proper descendant or the Shia. Randall seemed to think that wasn't quite as important as, as I thought it was, and I'm going to defer to him, but it still seems to me that when the Sunnis fight the Shia, it's basically about who is the guy that's in charge. Yeah, that, that was the basic cause of the schism in the first place. Uh, you know, the doctrinaire types of things. It's not really that much different from what goes on in Western religion. Uh, well, all right, they're Western religion. Uh, but within uh, Christianity, where there are different uh, sects, if you will, where they disagree about some aspect of policy or how to get a job done, and they go off and found their own little group. Well, Ra uh, Randall's right. I, I want to give him his, his props. He He is right that the overwhelming majority of the Muslims throughout the world reject that type of activity, which, which is great, but the crazy fuckers that are causing all the problems, they do not reject that. They embrace that, and that's, that seems to be a, a cornerstone of, of, of their deal. So I'm going to get off the terrorism thing because I want everybody to listen that didn't hear tonight to uh, download okay. Randall because he's a lot smarter than I am, and and you're in that league with him, but I don't. I don't. What the fuck was that? Are you still there? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The main thing to remember on that the whole uh, religious fanaticism angle is that the vast majority of people who subscribe to any religious belief system are not like that. Yeah, I mean, we had the same issue with uh, with Americans, where you have certain extremist religious groups that bomb abortion clinics. Yeah, it's, it's terrorism. It's the same kind of an idea. And the vast majority of Islamic people are very peaceful people, very uh, decent human beings, just like m most human beings. So we can't use that kind of broad brush to paint these people as evil. And there are evil fuckers out there doing bad things. And I don't, th I don't think you can say fuck on the Internet, Brian. Oh. <laughs> I, I, as a matter of fact, I'm fucking sure you can't say fuck on the fucking Internet. <laughs> I wanted, I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of, you know, uh, get us get a segue out of here, and I thought that yeah, would okay, no because yeah. I got, I got a, I got an email from a guy. So he's, he's an Amsterdammer, so I don't know if anybody's up at three o'clock in the morning in Amsterdam listen, but I do have my fans <laughs> over there. But it, this is kind of a tongue-in-cheek one, and, and he goes, "I like, I like to play." But he said, "No, if he says if religion is a drug." I have a question. I like to play poker. Should I smoke a joint before I play, or should I should I pray to God for better luck? Well, <laughs> and Amsterdam, he says so. Sativa or in indica. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it's kind of a tongue tongue and cheek deal. But from okay. Amsterdam, who the hell knows? But my recommendation to to this Amsterdammer, my recommendation is. Smoke a big bowl of hash and don't worry so much about praying to God. 
I think yeah, exactly. I think that'll work out. So let's 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 move back into drugs, man. What's okay? I, I mentioned up at the top of the show. I'll be talking to Chris Crane tomorrow. Uh, Recording an interview with him, and and I've been taking a lot of blowback for this uh, article I wrote for Opposing Views on OpposingView.com, and I took the position that I think you share is that uh, medical marijuana, as great as it is, and we believe in its efficacy, and we know that patients. Uh, benefit from it it's just it's just the wrong wrong strategy to move the drug debate forward and i think you and i uh, are on that page but what i what what some of these people are telling me as i mentioned at the top of the show you know quit rocking the fucking boat you know get get with the program and look the the real deal is obama's on our side and he's using jim webb for senator webb from virginia as this you know trojan horse thing to get the get the nuts and bolts done so that obama can President Obama can say, hey, we're going to do something. But my bitch is, and this is what I'm going to talk to, to Chris, because Chris is a proponent of this, you know, let's web, let Webb do his thing. This 18-month commission, it's not even, not even set up yet. It's still in the, in the talking stages. It hasn't been established. And then they have like 60 days from the established, when the act becomes law, to have their first meeting. Then it's 18 months. So we're looking at almost... 24 months, two fucking years before anything is even brought to the table as these are our recommendations. And in that two year period of time, about a million and a half people are going to get arrested for the simple possession of pot. So I'm not really big on, you know, holding my horses and putting a lot of faith in web and, and I want to rock the fucking boat. And I think you're right there with me. And what do you think? I am. I'm rocking like a son of a bitch because that's what we have to do. This is the a, a perfect confluence of events uh, the zeitgeist, the availability of the communications mechanisms, the absolute ironclad amount of information that we have, uh, there is no excuse to continue any of this bullshit. Uh, I think Arnold Trebach, as usual, uh, said it best, and he said it years ago, as usual. Uh, he said that the people that are arguing to try and take this piecemeal are basically, uh, if we were back in the Civil War period, they would be arguing that we should try and put uh, cement floors in the slave quarters. And that would be great because that would be an improvement for them. Well, clearly the problem is the institution itself is the disease you have to get rid of. And you don't cure a disease that, that's, uh, that is that incredibly bad and that incredibly pervasive across the international arena by pecking away with medical marijuana. It's just retarded. There's no other description for it. Um, for me, the, the whole point uh, that people are failing to realize with the medical marijuana debate is that both sides, you know, this is what's really, uh, it would be hysterical in a different context, I suppose, but both the people that are pushing for reform that call themselves leaders of various sorts and the National Drug Control Policy, uh, or National Drug, uh, Office of National Drug Control Policy, are both saying that medical marijuana is a, a Trojan horse. It's the back door for legalization. I mean, for God's sake. And they're, and they're right, actually, for a fucking, for a change, yeah. they're right. It's like, for Christ's sake, if, if they're saying it and we're saying it, well, drop the pretense. What the hell is wrong with you? Uh, I'm convinced that most people who are involved in drug, war, uh, uh, drug law reform, uh, are, are, they have no balls. This is a country that was founded by people with balls. They stood up and said, hey, you know what? Fuck you. This is wrong. This is wrong. There is nothing about the drug war that anyone can stand up and justify in any argument, in any point, in any, any place on the earth, I will be happy to go and argue with anybody that you are not going to convince me to continue fighting the drug war
for how many, who knows how many more decades while you dick around with one little law here and another little law over there. And like, for Christ's sake, what we're trying to do is actually changing the world. And if people don't make that connection from Randall's talk tonight, I, you know, I yeah, don't know how to make it he, I, thought, I thought Randall did a hell of a job. I, he did. I, 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 I'm hoping my listeners go and, and uh, check out his, his, uh, his blog because he's, he does it every Friday, keeps a, keeps a good archive. He's a real smart guy. So listen, Brian. You know the the opium den. Uh, we're we're drug friendly. You know we don't we don't recommend that people do drugs, obviously, because who the fuck listens to us? But we certainly don't apologize for it. So, in your neck of the woods, what's uh, what's the local weed situation like? Uh, it, it's probably a very typical example of what goes on across the country. There's some really killer uh, locally grown stuff. <laughs> And there's the usual bulk Mexican crap, which has gotten way better over the years since they started growing it in our national forests and you know, cutting out a lot of the problems that they had with transportation, heat, and those kinds of things when they're trying to get it to us. Uh, so you know, I'm pretty sure it's the same picture in Virginia as it is across much of America. So you just revealed your secret location. You're in Virginia? Yeah. No, it's, it's well known. There's nothing hidden about anything that I've done. And, well, I, of course not. You, you look at your webpage, and you might as well be, you know, have a picture of yourself <laughs> naked in there, as much as much truth as you tell. Actually, so, a picture of me smoking a joint in there. Yeah. And, so what's uh, so what's what uh, what's what's the uh, flavor of the month up there in Virginia? And and also let's let's include clue our listeners into into the price. I I'm, I'll, I'll give my information first. I'm I'm smoking some extremely good hydroponic pot. Uh, my, my little marijuana merchant calls it blueberry, and it is a very flavorful, flavorful smoke. But I'm paying like you know four, four and a quarter, four fifty an ounce. So, what's what's the flavor of the month in Virginia, and what's the, what's the cost structure? I honestly wish that I could give you an accurate picture, but believe it or not, uh, I have a very difficult time finding weed here. No, when really. I get weed, it's typically not from around here. Simply because I don't. Well, I actually don't. Well, call Jim it. Webb because he's smoking something. He's got to be smoking something. <laughs> Holy crap! But you know, it's, seriously, I'm not kidding. I can't believe it because of the the presence that I have on the on the internet and uh, within the circles of, of drug law reform, uh, widely known. So if there's anybody who's not a narc, it's me. Hello. You know, I'm out there trying to convince people to leave us the fuck alone and let us smoke our plants. And uh, hello, people. If anybody in Virginia is listening, track me down. <laughs> yeah. As long as you're not a cop, because uh, I don't, I'm not really fond of what cops well, do. Well, they, they, get, they get some of the best weed, you know. I mean, Yeah, they do. And, and, and it's funny because the, there is a lot of truth to the idea that there is a certain amount of it that gets pilfered. Uh, but we also have to respect the fact that for the, the vast majority of people that are doing that job are honorable people, and they're really not assholes. And really no, without question. I mean, I've interacted with law enforcement uh, during my during my career in uh, building cellular phone companies. We had to provide, or not had to, but we gladly uh, provided at no charge cellular service to the highway patrol, the local police. And by and large, uh, like you say, they are very honorable people. But it does, as you know, it doesn't take many bad apples to, to to spoil the barrel. And I would think that if we do get our shit together and, and repeal prohibition and create a, a a controlled marketplace, that will in itself help weed out. And I don't use that term as a pun, but it, it will help weed out some of those police who there are cases of them joining the joining the police force just to get into the drug business. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, w- it will help a lot, and it'll go a long way toward restoring a lot of respect amongst the general populace for the police. 
you know, one of the really cool things, you know, and I have to agree with uh, a comment that you made on a, on a different show that uh, you have on your archive. We were talking about Leap. It's like, you know, holy crap, you know, these are... These are the cops, man. These were the guys who were chasing us around for decades. Yeah, that's the, that's the, that's shit, the fucking, best allies. That's the fucking weird thing. It is the most surreal part of my advocacy is that the people who are most firmly on my side that believe exactly what I believe are the same fuckers that have been chasing me for 40 years trying to put me back in jail. And yeah, it, it's, yeah. It's like I feel like I'm in a Salvador Dali painting or something, but I love exactly. Leap. We've got Jack. Jack Cole's going to be on. <laughs> We got can't you know, wait a lot of the because folks from uh, a lot of the folks from Leap are going to uh, uh, to come on and and uh, and speak with me. I mean, if they if they don't if they don't listen to any of my shows beforehand, they'll probably will. But they hear some of this crazy shit, and I might they might think <laughs> twice. But no, I I, I, I I kid I kid my friends at Leap. Jack Cole, uh, when I when I first proposed this to Jack, I said I want to do a segment on the show called Cops on Drugs. I thought it had you know, a nice <laughs> ring to it, you know. And Jack, uh, you know, Jack being the sweet man that he is, sat down with me and said, you know what, I really don't think Cops on Drugs is the way to, to present us to your, to your listeners. And I said, well, okay, Jack. I said, if you'll sit down and talk with me for an hour instead of doing it every couple of weeks for five minutes, I said, I won't call it Cops on Drugs. But God damn it, I really like that. I thought Cops oh, on no, Drugs. Oh, no, it's, it's a beautiful name, but I, I absolutely understand Jack's position. Uh, the, the funny thing is I actually know Jack very well. Uh, we first met back in 2002, and uh, it was basically around the time that Leap had first started up. And, you know, we were able to spend some quality time together. We were actually visiting a, uh, a group of folks up in Syracuse, New York, called Reconsider, which is a, uh, a citizens group, basically, in Syracuse that uh, has been looking at the, the drug war and, and coming up with some really excellent uh, academic quality assessments of what's going on and how stupid and retarded it is and, and, and it's just a fantastic group of people. Uh, Mike Smithson, one of the guys from that group, uh, was actually coordinating the uh, uh, appearances for, you know, speaker appearances with the media for various members of LEAP and uh, he had mentioned to me that Jack was going to be up there along with uh, uh, Jim Gray, the uh, circuit, uh, Orange County Circuit uh, Judge. Judge. One time. <laughs> Circuit Court Judge Orange <laughs> County out in California, who wrote a, another excellent book about the drug war, and he, he mentioned to me it'd be a great chance to meet some of these people and, and do some networking and, and uh, offer my services and whatever the hell I could do to help. Uh, so I drove on up to Syracuse for a couple of days and got to hang out with those folks. And uh, when I got to talking with Jack, naturally, I found out that hey, you know, he's a former uh, state trooper in New Jersey, and he was cruising around in my neck of the woods in Jersey. That's where I grew up. And so, do you think? Do you think any of the? Do you think any of the guys in Leap get high? What about um, Peter Chris? What do you think about him? Uh, I love Peter. He, yeah, I do, I do too. I'm, I'm speaking really in the in the in the context. The long hair. Of, yeah, of getting high. Yeah. yeah. And, and he just looks like a stoner. He really does. But I don't think that he does. I. I don't know, and if I knew any of the members of Leap who were doing that kind of thing, I wouldn't say it. I'd oh, I wouldn't out any of them either. per se. Although I, you know, I, you know, we, we both have this this problem with people who won't come clean, mostly in the mainstream yeah. media. And that article Joe Klein wrote for Time or Newsweek. I mean, he, he, he was such a 
his his facts weren't good, but you know, it just kills me. All these people in the mainstream media that and, and 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 Klein used to write for Rolling Stone, so you know the son of a bitch got high like crazy. Probably did acid. Probably did every drug that was around at the time when he was involved there, because the Rolling Stone magazine did not keep straight sober people around on the payroll. I mean, they just yeah, did exactly. did not work. So all these mainstream media people who are are basically enablers of the ONDCP by by keeping their mouth shut and not asking the right questions and not pushing it. And then they go home at night and they fire up a big joint or, you know, do a Xanax to get some sleep or, you know, pop a Vicodin because they think they got a back pain. They're, they're just as involved in the illegal drug consumption market as you and and I and, and many of our friends. But they don't, you're talking about drug policy leaders growing some balls. I think these people in the mainstream media need to grow some balls and come out and challenge the the government, Barack Obama specifically, the ONDCP. Bring up the bring up the the story about Biden's daughter, daughter snorting coke and Kurlikowski's kid still in jail for for drug offenses. I mean, that I, don't get me started. But you know, but fuck these guys if they don't have the balls to say, you know what. I'm a I'm a high paid journalist. I'm on TV all the time, and I go home every night, and you know I smoke up I smoke a big joint and put you know put a leather girdle on. I mean they just don't they they, 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 they don't have the balls. My brain up, man. <laughs> so anyway, Brian, I I want to thank you. Tell 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 our listeners again what your website is, and they can go and get some oh, education. Okay, sure. I call it Truth, the Anti-Drug War. If you type in Anti-Drug War into uh, Google, you'll find me at the top of the hit list there. Um, uh, I did want to make one comment, though. Okay. <laughs> As usual, you, 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 you give me too much stuff to work with. Uh, there's too well, that shit's going to end. <laughs> <laughs> the, whole, the whole missing link in all of this, and, and I've you know, got to blame Normal and, and, and other people with this, in addition to the mainstream media and the celebrities that get caught, for their lack of balls. It's like, look, the missing link in all of this is to normalize drug use and to normalize drug users. If you get caught smoking a, a bong, Michael Phelps, stand the fuck up. Grow some fucking balls. Say, yes, I like to smoke pot. I won eight gold medals. What the fuck do you people want out of me? And, and that's what's missing. If we would get people who get caught especially high-profile people, to stand up and say, look, you know what, I'm not going to apologize for yeah, this. And, I want and, you fuckers to apologize. And, and we need the people that haven't gotten caught to stand up because generally yeah. you get caught, you give the mea culpa, mea culpa, I'll never do it again, pass the bong shit. We need people who have not been caught yet that have been put in the situation where they got to be contrite. What about Steve Jobs? That, I understand his health isn't all that good, but he is on record as saying taking LSD was the... It was, in the, it was in the top three experiences of his life, most meaningful experiences of his life. Bill Gates, the world's richest fucking man for almost every year gone, dropped out of Harvard or Yale, whichever it was, I'm not sure. And that Harvard. guy, Harvard, that guy has eaten acid. Where, what has he got to lose? What, is, what has he got to lose? Yes. What, job, what does Jobs have to lose by coming out and saying, you know what? Let's put the brakes on a little bit. You know, two two of the most creative, two of the most wealthy people in the world create or, or consider doing LSD one of the best things they ever did. I mean, I don't want to out to people, but I mean, these guys are on record saying that. I mean, we yeah. need these guys who really may have prestige to lose, but they're not going to lose money. They're not going to go to jail. They need to stand up and say. Just like you're saying, I mean, Michael Phelps grow some balls, but yeah, he was caught, so he had to, he had to 
kind of step that minefield carefully. But these guys that haven't been caught that are sitting back, they, they pay attention. They know what's going on. Why don't they fucking grow a pair of balls and say, you know what? Fuck you people. This is the way it is. This is how we should do it. And they would have a greater, I think they'd have a greater impact on changing the drug debate than Webb or Obama or even, even uh, Michael Phelps. I mean, he's, he, drew a lot of attention to it. But these are guys that don't have anything, don't have to do the mea culpa. They didn't get caught. They can speak this information on their own volition. That, that I think, would have a greater impact than, than Barack Obama saying, you know what, I think we're going to do something here. Because he's not going to yeah. say that. Yeah, I agree on both counts. That, you know, if we got some high-profile people like that to stand up and, 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 and join the cause, that would be fantastic. Uh, they need to listen to your show, clearly. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I probably need to listen to my shows more often so I don't go off on a fucking tangent. But Brian, Brian C. Bennett, we're going to get you off the air because we're going to have you back again probably more often than uh, than you want after a while. But I just want to thank you for uh, for spending some time with us tonight. And uh, uh, and I hope I hope somebody in fucking Virginia gets together with you and uh and put you in a put you in a bag of weed or something because goddamn something primo please yeah well you'll, you'll you'll smoke anything at this point but but uh, it would, well it would not be... quite anything but you were close <laughs> okay <laughs> Brian C Bennett now we're dope addicts <laughs> you've been in the opium den and now we're going to let you go thanks a lot brother no problem Daniel take care okay bye now all right bye okay Brian Bennett friend of the show. Good guy, smart guy. Check his uh, check his website out. Again, uh, tomorrow I'll be uh, I'll be speaking tomorrow morning. Actually, Friday morning, April or May the second, I believe. I don't know. I'll be speaking with Chris Crane, the executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and I've uh, I've known Chris for a few years. He's a very smart, very dedicated guy, and we're going to go up on it about the uh, uh, the uh, web. Uh, Webb's deal on the National Criminal Justice Commission Act of 2009. So, we went a little overtime tonight. I'll have to pay a little extra for this. Uh, hoping everybody enjoyed it. So, what I would like to say, until next time, you've been in the opium den. Stay healthy and high when it helps. Bye now. <laughs>